Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. And then we can jump in. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have given us your word, that by it we might know you and we might know your plan of salvation. We might know the way. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Uh, He prayed right before uh, he went to the cross for his disciples, and he said, um, sanctify them by your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. And so we ask right now that you would sanctify us by your word, that you'd give us the strength to live it out, We ask that your spirit right now would uh, speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We thank you for your love and your goodness and your faithfulness in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we are continuing our survey of the Old Testament and then probably what will end up being the entire Bible. Uh, Last week... We didn't get very far. We basically, we talked about uh, the creation in Genesis 1, and we talked about uh, more specifically the creation of man and uh, being placed in the Garden of Eden. And we kind of unpacked that to see what exactly was the Garden of Eden. Um, And as we saw, we said, um, we began the beginning of the survey of the Old Testament with the dwelling of God and man, Eden. The location of God's divine council, where his throne is located, a high mountain garden filled with lush vegetation and a river that flows out from the throne of God that waters this mountainous home. Man and woman lived in harmony with each other, with creation and with Yahweh. We lived with the Lord basking in his presence and all the goodness of his blessings. And then we fast forwarded to the end of this age and we saw that the final abode of man at the end of this present time will once again be before God's throne in a new garden that fills the whole earth and upon that new holy mountain, Mount Zion. And we will forever be with our Lord, the Bible says. Now the rest of the history of God and man or mankind is how we fell from the mountaintop and how the Lord brings us back to the mountaintop. So every single other thing that we're going to encounter from here on out in the Bible is essentially the story of in between the mountaintops, in between dwelling with God, in between being in God's presence, being free from sin, free from death, and free from all the things that we currently live through in this world, all the suffering and pain that we go through this time in this great valley that we call basically the age of man. Uh, So we are, our goal today is to get through, we're going to, again, because it's a survey, we're going to skip to certain sections. So we're going to go through Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. Uh, These will be really big kind of foundational movements or moments in the story of God with man. All right, let's open to Genesis 3. Verse 1 reads this, and we'll go through uh, verse 
We'll go through verse 19. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can eat or you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. And you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. and You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Uh, a pretty depressing section of scripture, really, especially from last week where we see this mountaintop uh, throne room of God that we get to be a part of. This place where there's no death or pain or suffering, where everyone lives together in harmony. And yet we see here that that is all over now. So I want to dig into a couple things real quick. And the thing that I really want to dig into the most is specifically who this serpent is. This serpent uh, is introduced to us here and we're going to see him through the rest of scripture. I think it's pretty clear uh, just if, if you only read this part of scripture and didn't have the rest it's pretty clear that this is not just an animal. 
that this is something more than an animal. We've only been introduced so far to uh, a couple characters in the Bible. We've been introduced to God. We've been introduced to Adam. We've been introduced to Eve. And then we've been introduced to characters which yet aren't really characters, but uh, the creation itself. So there's, there's animals, there's plants. And we got specifically introduced in chapter 2 to the animals because every animal was brought before Adam and he got to give them a name. And it was here that Adam had a, a, a recognition or an epiphany that, wait, none of these really matches up to me. None of these can really be a helpmate, a partner. And so it was at this point that God says, ah, yes, Adam, you realize what I already knew, um, that it's not good for you to be alone. I'll make someone like you. And so he, we, we see that he puts Adam to sleep and he makes Eve out of, out of Adam. So now the next kind of thing we see is this serpent. And it says that this, it's more crafty than all the other animals. And as we go through, the serpent obviously can talk and he deceives a woman. And really what we're going to see here and in all three of these sections, Genesis 3, 6, and 11, and really through the rest of scripture, this entire valley between the two mountain peaks of uh, Genesis 2 and Revelation 21, where we're with God on, in his mountain garden home, in between what we're going to see is the battle of the divine beings. And the battle of the divine beings will be between Yahweh and between these rebellious divine beings who were also created by him that have decided that they're going to rebel and will begin to pull uh, human adherents or followers to themselves. So what you're really going to see is you're going to see people who are following Yahweh and you're going to see spiritual beings who are following Yahweh and then you're going to see uh, wicked spiritual beings and the humans that are going to follow them. And the rest of the Bible will kind of be this battle between these two seeds, as it talks about uh, later on there in Genesis 3. Those who are the seeds of the woman and those who are the seeds of the serpent. Uh, what I kind of want to go into a little bit, and, and a lot of this is from this book, The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. So I want you guys, if you guys want to read it or you want to get it, you can. It goes into a lot of the stuff. But a couple things that are really interesting about this uh, serpent being. Um, first of all, the word is, and I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's uh, nakash. And really, this word can be translated in three different ways. It can be translated as serpent. It can be translated as shining one. In Daniel, it talks about that he saw an image of God and that it looked like shining bronze or shining copper. And... <laughs> We've already deduced that this is probably a spiritual being of some kind. Uh, most snakes don't talk, as we all know. Uh, we are talking about the word uh, nakash, and we are talking about, again, a lot of this teaching comes specifically from the Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, who is a Hebrew scholar. And so he goes into the word. Uh, what, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but Hebrew in the original Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. So that word would be written out. N-C-H-S-H. -H. Of course, it would be written in Hebrew, so not those uh, alphabetical uh, characters. But the point being is that when Hebrew, when you read Hebrew, what they look at is the context, and that's how they figure out which vowels should fit in there. So when you read this, really this, those sets of, of characters could mean serpent. It could mean a shining being or something that's shiny, uh, like I talked about in Daniel when he saw the vision of the Lord and he sees this, this character like a man that is shining like bronze. 
So it gives this idea of a, a shining metal. And it can also mean diviner, someone who gives you information or knowledge from the spiritual realm, like an oracle. Uh, and, and kind of his point is that really when these things are being written, it can really mean any of those. And that sometimes when a writer's writing something like that, he really wants you to dwell on which three of those it could mean. And that really there's an ability that it could have all three of those connotations. This is a, this is a serpent that's giving her knowledge of things that she wouldn't know otherwise. Divine knowledge. When you, when you eat this, you'll be like God. Um, it could also be a being that uh, it's clearly some sort of divine being. So it could have that connotation of, of a shining one. And of course, it could also have the connotation of a serpent. Yeah, you had a question? The word maybe came later after this description from Genesis. Then that word came to mean all of those things together because from that first instance of this, he was the shining one, the serpent, and the diviner. And so maybe, I mean, probably that's where that word came from, just like, Kleenex became, it was a brand and then became the word for Kleenex type of deal for tissue. Yeah. Maybe it was derived from that. And so it has all those connotations. Well, I think that makes the most sense if this is the beginning of the Hebrew cultural world. I mean, I I can't speak to that specifically because I don't know. Is this an open forum? I mean, people can ask questions. I don't know for sure. Um, I'm, obviously, the Bible does talk about that the devil himself can appear as an angel of light. Um, lastly, the thing that I kind of wanted to talk about in regards to the serpent. I mean, we'll go in. It's really clear from the Bible who it is. Genesis, or uh, I'm sorry, Revelation uh, says that it is the serpent of old. So Revelation says, and I think it's Revelation 20, when it talks about God judging the beast, it says, and not only did he judge the beast, but he grabbed that serpent of old, who is the dragon and the devil. So very clearly, this is the devil. Right. But those could have been like more... Um not literal, but more poetic, like, like he's like a serpent. So the thing that I'm going to get into, so the thing that I'm going to get into next is if, if, does it make sense to call him as though? Well, here, why don't we go to the next part? Because then it'll make sense instead of everybody else just talking about it. Uh, if somebody would turn to Isaiah 6 and read Isaiah 6, I think it's just the first couple verses. Um, but it immediately mentions a type of spiritual being in, a, in Isaiah 6 in the vision that I think we actually talked about last six week. Five. I don't know. I think it's 6-1. Isaiah 6-1. Isaiah 6-1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With okay. two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Okay, you can stop right there. Okay. Good boy, Greg, the sword. Seraphim. When you read that, <laughs> All right, so we we talked about we talked about last week that there was the cherubim, 
And there's di- so there's different spiritual beings. The Bible, we, we kind of tend to think of God, angels, and people. And really, that's not how the Jews thought about it. That's not how the Hebrews thought about it. And that's not what the Bible says. The word angel is malak, and it means messenger. So if you thought about a king's uh, throne room, you would have different officials there. You'd have people who give him advice. You would have counselors. You might also have uh, soldiers or guards that were the best guards, basically like the secret service that are there to guard the king. But you would also have people that were sent as uh, emissaries or ambassadors or messengers from the king. They had an important position, but their position is different than a guard that guards the king. And so angels are messengers. That is their specific role. They are messengers, ambassadors, emissaries of God. They are not seraphim. They are not cherubim. These are temple or throne guardians. So the seraphim, you'll always find them in the Bible around the throne. They're there as guardians, as essentially soldiers, the highest rank of soldier in the throne room. They're not an angel. They're a type of spiritual being. The Bible talks about the sons of God, the Ben Elohim. And this is a whole rank, uh, a whole uh, host of different types of spiritual beings that have different ranks, different authority, different powers, and different positions within God's divine counsel or within his kingdom in the spiritual realm. And so, real quick, let me just get to this part. The seraphim, what that word literally means, every other place that it's translated in the Bible is serpent. The Egyptians even had the same type of character that was a, a guardian of the deity Pharaoh. And this is what it looked like. It looks like a flying cobra with wings on it. Now, as if you guys want to pass that around, you can. That's an actual sculpture from uh, Egypt. And so they literally had these seraphim that, that in their, or I shouldn't say literally, they in their way of thinking about the gods, there was these particular divine beings who guarded the Pharaoh, the king. The Bible says, actually, these beings don't, the Pharaoh's nothing. These beings are actually my beings. And he talks about them having six wings. So what would make sense as we go through this, and again, I'm not saying this is necessarily a seraphim. My point being that it is a, it's some sort of spiritual being. We find out later it's the devil. Whatever it was, it was at one time under the authority of God, and now it rebels. And this is the beginning of this great grand battle that we're going to see through the rest of the Bible. This is the beginning of the spiritual warfare. And really the whole rest of the Bible talks about it. But sometimes we only catch, we only catch glimpses of it. And so if you think of a being like this that has these six wings and then those wings are taken from it, it would make sense that God would make the uh, kind of Uh, the taunt that now you're going to be on the dust. You're going to eat dust. Snakes don't actually eat dust. We all know that. No, No animal eats dust to live. The point being, you were once high and exalted, even as high as the throne of God, and now you are the lowest. In fact, you're so low, you're even lower than just the, the basic animals I made. Not even, not even humans. You're lower than the animals and you're going to go in the dust all the days of your life. So there's this kind of this play that when God gives them this curse, that there's this, um, Jesus talks about seeing Satan cast out of heaven. You're being cast out of the highest and now you're brought to the lowest. Yeah. Is this a little bit like, uh, 
what's the name of the book again? The, the Unseen Realm. Yeah. Is that a little bit like that podcast we were listening yeah, to? Yeah, it's the same guy. Oh, it's the same guy. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I want to read real quick from Colossians 1, 16. And I think this kind of will help us set the, kind of set up what we're getting into here and, and what we're going to be seeing through the rest of the Bible. Um, if I can find it. If anybody has Colossians 1, 16. Oh, here it is. Okay. says so this uh, in, in, Uh, chapter one of Colossians, we'll start in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So, what we kind of, as we read through the Bible, we have kind of this idea that there is a spiritual battle and that there's a spiritual realm. And we kind of almost, when we talk about the spiritual realm, we do often say, oh, well, yeah, obviously there's ranks. It says right here, there's thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. And we kind of assign those, oh, this must be this angel. and He was the best angel. They're most powerful. And really what these are is these are the spiritual beings that God created, but they don't fall just under the category of angel even though oftentimes in the New Testament, that is the word used because it's in Greek, not in Hebrew, if that makes sense. One of the things that was interesting uh, one year when I was teaching Mesoamerican cultures, and that was that even those that were cut off from one another had really similar thoughts that looked very same as one another and that occupied similar positions, and I always found that somewhat fascinating. I this is Texacodal. Yeah, and, uh, and he shows up in almost all of the yeah, other. He's the feathered serpent. Yep, and he shows up in almost all of the other cultures as well by different names, but looking the same and oftentimes with the same position. Mm-hmm. Just always made me really curious about spiritual things because remember that talk where I can't remember who it was, but he leaves and then he's standing on certain ground, maybe in a tomb. Maybe that guy talked about it, but when yeah, he was too. standing there, there was a different person who was in charge, a different spiritual being. He carried the dirt with him. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, that's that's Nahum. Yeah. And or uh, Naaman. And wasn't that because he went to a different Yeah. And, a different yeah. So, there? I mean, really, none of this should surprise us because if we believe... So the way that the world, the way that the secular world looks at religion is they look at it through an, uh, it's a, a study under... Uh, anthropology, that humans came up with the idea of God. And so what they'll say is the idea of God evolved to where we have monotheism. So we kind of started like, oh, they're, oh, the sun, there must be a God associated with that because they couldn't understand it. But really what the Bible would say is from the time of Noah onward would be people would have known about the living, the true and living God. And then as they dispersed at the Tower of Babel, what would have happened is their knowledge of God, just like the languages, would have dispersed. And so they would have gone from a creator God of heaven and earth who flooded the world. It's why the flood story is found in hundreds of other cultures. You can find the flood story in almost every single culture on earth. It's not unique to the Bible. What that would tell me is, so what they would say is, oh, the Bible just stole this from other cultures. What I would say is other cultures took this story that they knew right after the flood, before they were dispersed, and it became part of their myths of the gods. 
And what I would also say is almost every culture has a hierarchy of gods with a supreme being on top. And that is literally what the Hebrews believed. They believed there was multiple gods. Even Paul talks about it. These gods that you worship, these other gods, he knows they're gods. He would use a small G. They're not the creator God, but they are the Ben Elohim, the sons of God. So what we're talking about are essentially all the Greek myths, Zeus and and possibly. I would just say, but what I would say about all those things is those are all perversions of the truth, including what the Egyptians had. So is it surprising that the the Hebrews would have commentary on the same types of Egyptian spiritual beings? Well, some might go and say, oh, well, that's just proof that the Bible stole from other cultures. What I would say is, no, it's actually proof that God is making commentary on these other cultures. You're being, right, your being doesn't protect you. He's actually works for me. Um, And we're going to see that as we go through, especially as we get into Genesis 6, because there's some really weird stuff that begins to happen that was replete throughout Near Eastern culture and throughout all cultures. Our ideas of guys like uh, Hercules and who's the other um, demigod from the um, Greeks? Achilles. 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 These are all ideas of beings who are supernaturally strong and have supernatural gifting because they are the beings of the cohabiting of the gods and humans. And so we think of that as like, oh, how silly. And yet our entire religion is based on the true and living God impregnating a virgin woman and bringing forth the Christ. So it's really funny how we will parse those things out and say, oh, that's so silly and weird. And yet we say, but our religion, we worship the true uh, demigod, or he's not a demigod, but the true human and divine being, Jesus. So I read read an article this week on, uh, it might have been called uh, the Nephilim or the return of the Nephilim or something like that. Anyway, it was all about giants and throughout history and throughout even our, like, during the era of newspapers, like, there were newspaper articles all over the United States of digging up bones of giants, some of them up to 30 feet tall. And, like, the pharaohs, this article was saying, they believed the pharaohs were giants and that these giants were really the ones that built the pyramids because they had the strength. Ain't so, no big thing. Anyway, it was really fascinating. You know, like we're talking about the Nephilim, or essentially that's what he's talking about to some degree, correct? Right, yeah, right. that's what I'm talking about yeah, when I talk about that. So, it doesn't necessarily go into like what's the ranking of the hierarchy. It just talks about, and we'll go into it another time. I want to do a whole teaching on the Divine Council, probably after we get through this part okay. on just the different, the beginning of the war. Well, and that's the whole point, though. Yeah, that's who works for you. That's what? What? That he works for me? I mean, did those people, did those beings all Well, every being is subservient well, to Christ. I mean, being that ever created. we can go into that, but I just, I don't study, I don't study for all the different questions you guys are going to have, but we, we can start doing that. Well, Sonny was talking, Sonny was talking about a Wednesday night service at his place or something. Yeah. We could get studied. Okay. All right. I'm going to start putting questions on there. There's a different, like there are spiritual beings that work for God, like the angel Gabriel. Yep. Tons of them. I would say most of them probably. Those who work for 
I wouldn't say they, they work for I would just say that they have all chosen to rebel against God. And then those would be demons? Uh, that's a further discussion that I can't really... Never mind. ...would have to study more to, like, give you a better answer. I just wanted to know... Well, I mean, yes. Demons are some sort of spiritual being that are rebellion to God. I mean, that's clear. Where where they rank, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't go into a a hierarchy because I don't think the Bible's really concerned with that. It's more concerned with just letting us know there is this divine council who God sits enthroned upon, and he, he... divvies up responsibilities to them and has them do things for him. And they're part of his ruling of the universe, just like we will be. We're going to be invited into the divine council. Some people even think that's why the devil did this in the first place, is that he was furious that human beings, these lowly created fleshly things, were going to be elevated to the point of being in the divine council and that he couldn't abide by that. So these gods like Baal and like, Quetzalcoatl and some of those who demand children's sacrifices and so on. Those are just little G gods in opposition to our God. Correct. Right. Yeah. They're those powers and principalities it talks about in the Bible. Okay. uh, Colossians 2. I'm going to just read a couple verses from the New Testament to kind of set our mind on these things because I think it's helpful. Uh. If somebody would read Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Yach, if you would read that. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Micah, if you would read Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Uh, Sonny, if you would read John 16, 7 through 11. And I'll read... Can you say that on John what? John 16, 7 through 11. Uh who else has a Bible in here? Elijah, John 12, 27 through 32. John 12, did you say? Uh, whoever has Colossians 2, if you would start with that one. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He gave us all our sin. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, so this one is super interesting because this actually takes us to kind of the end of the battle, and what it says is our indebtedness in sin somehow made us, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, enslaved by, indebted to, I don't know how you want to say it, to these other beings. Beholden to. Beholden to, that's probably the best way to say it. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says these debt notes that we had because of our sins were actually nailed to the cross with Christ. And he disarmed the power that these authorities, these demonic spiritual beings, these rebellious spiritual beings had over us. So in other words, as long, it's almost like as long as we were in sin, death reigned over us. The devil has the power of death. And so he was our master. And no matter what the Lord wanted to do to save us from that, he had authority legally by our actions to have authority over us. But when Christ died on the cross, it disarmed that authority. 
So it's this really fascinating thing of like this Colossians in those verses is really giving us a little glimpse into this battle that's been raging since Genesis 3 between Yahweh and the faithful spiritual beings or Ben Elohim, sons of God, and the rebellious Ben Elohim, sons of God, and their followers. And there's been this battle raging. And when Christ died on the cross, it was the beginning of a new thing. It was the beginning of the end of their of this battle and also of their reign here on earth. Um, who has Ephesians 6.10? 6.10, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, Ephesians 6.10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over his present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. What is it through? Twelve? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm already done. Yeah. Sorry. That's right. Um, okay. Everything. Isn't everything? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so. In other words. Kind of like when you drove to LeGrand. In other words. In other words, basically. Uh, we are fighting not a battle against other people. But we're fighting a battle against the actual cosmic spiritual authorities that are over those people in their lives. The Bible talks about in another place that we have been translated. When we gave our life to Christ, we were actually translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, so long as we're in the kingdom of darkness, we are under the authority of some principality, power, However you want to phrase that, that's how the New Testament says it. What it is, is a rebellious Ben Elohim, a rebellious son of God, who were under their authority so long as we live under their rules, which are rules of rebellion. So, so long as we continue to serve them and are loyal to them, we live in their, their realm and we're under their control and authority. The Bible says that we're, that's who we're wrestling against. So when you're praying for someone who doesn't know the Lord, they are actually currently being blinded by the God of this world. In other words, Satan or the devil. Uh, who had John 16, 7 through 11? Sonny? I did, yeah. Okay. Sorry, 7 through 11? Uh, yeah, chapter 16, 7 through 11. Okay. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Okay, again, Jesus is specifically talking about this battle that has raged on since Genesis 3, all through history. He's talking about the battle against the devil and that that battle is about to be won. 
that he is coming to judge the devil for what he's done. And that when he leaves, he's going to send the counselor, in other words, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of three things. Sin, that people don't believe in him, so they're still in their sins. Of righteousness, that Jesus is righteous. How do we know this? Because he's ascended to the Father. If you're in God's presence, you have to be righteous. That's our, that's our key to knowing, oh yeah, Jesus is righteous because he dwells at the right hand of God. And of judgment, that God is coming to, that Jesus actually has begun to judge the God of this age. The God of this current world. Did he say that before his crucifixion yeah, or after? He before. Uh, Elijah, John 12. What verse? 27-32. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had a hundred had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Keep going. Yeah. Now is the judgment of this world. Now I, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Okay, so again, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he's saying, when I go to the cross... The ruler of this present age, the ruler of this world, will be judged. He's not talking about Caesar. He's not talking about the fleshly rulers of this world. He is talking about the devil, who really is the one who's orchestrating all the things that are going on in this world. So again and again, Jesus is saying, I'm in this battle, I've been in this battle, and now I'm about ready to win it. All right, we already talked about in Revelation uh, 20, verse 2, it says uh, the dragon in Revelation is the serpent, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So the Bible ties all these things together in Revelation, that they're all the same. We talked about that the Nakash can have this these kind of different meanings. But really, the, the idea that I want you guys to get here is that the serpent was some sort of son of God, Ben Elohim, a divine being, that chose to rebel against God. And what we're going to see is three huge rebellions. And we're going to try and go through these as fast as we can, since it's, we've already been here for a while and we're only in Genesis 3. I want to, uh, we already read through chapter 3, but I want to turn your attention real quick uh, to chapter 3, verse 15, because God curses all of them. And I'd love to dig into this deeper, but since we're trying to go through as quick as possible, uh, what he says in verse 15 is, I will put hostility between you, speaking to the serpent, to this spiritual being, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will crush his heel. Uh, a lot of people call this um, the proto-evangelium or the first gospel, the first message. And what you're going to start realizing, if you go in and you start reading all the different names that the people who are godly and follow Yahweh through the rest of Genesis start naming their kids... They are expecting someone to come. Like Noah's name means rest. Why? It says, because he's going to be the one that's going to bring us back to rest. What are they talking about rest? Before child labor, part of the curse for the woman was painful child labor. And part of the curse for the man was painful daily labor to get food. He's going to be the one that's going to bring us back to the garden, back to rest. And so many of the early uh, 
patriarchs, their names are, are literally their parents hoping that will be the next, that, oh, this is going to be the one. Even Seth means, uh, the name he's, he's giving me a new child. Maybe this will be the one over and over. They start naming their kids. Like this could be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. So they know what's going on. And what's interesting is that often in Jewish literature, we would say, if you were asking us, if I asked any one of you, um, how did sin come into the world, Sonny? Uh, there you go. And yet in so much of Jewish writing, they blame the Ben Elohim over and over. How did, how did sin come into the world? Ben, the, the rebellious spiritual beings. And they'll go on and say, well, how do we become so, so wicked? And they'll go, oh, well, we, they, keep, they kept teaching us more and more wicked things. And we learned the knowledge of wickedness from these beings. And so there's this idea that, yes, of course, we know that humans are responsible. The Bible talks about that. But there's this idea that almost like they trained us in wickedness. So where it says we were made in his likeness and image. We weren't made with that wickedness in us like we have now. Correct. We didn't have that. It, it, so it was brought into us. Yeah. Through one, through convincing of the serpent. Well, and it he talks about I, it talks about in either Isaiah or Jeremiah that those who worship idols and it mocks the idols. You know, you take this this piece of wood with part of it you heat your house, with part of it you cook your bread, and with part of it you carve out an image that you bow down to. And it says those who worship them become like them. The same idea. The image bearer becomes like the image it worships. So when we were made in the image of Yahweh, and as we worship him, we are image bearers of him. When we worship idols, we become like them. And so there's kind of this idea as you go through. So what do you think about the image of Christ and the image of the cross? Where in, you know, in the Ten Commandments, it says they have no... No idols and no images. Do you think those are also? I was listening to R.C. Sproul and he was talking about it the other day about those images. And what do you think about like pictures of Jesus and people? You know, some some different. I mean, I would. I mean, for stay in front of them and yeah, pray. And, for me, I mean, I would just go back to uh, all the way back to like Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Right. You shall I'm have saying. no image of the Lord your God, and the whole reason is because. He can't be contained in one of those. And, and it de 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 anyway, it brings him out of his throne, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it brings him lower than what he is. Right. I mean, because we try and... The, there is only one image of God on earth. That's us. When we walk in perfection of his spirit, we are the only image of God. Jesus was the only one who walked as a human being perfectly in sync with the spirit of God, perfectly under its command. And so he is the perfect image of God on earth. And the Bible says he is that. So it's really that whole idea all the way through that we are image bearers and Jesus is the perfect image bearer. Why? Not just because he was God in human flesh, but specifically also because he walked under complete submission to the spirit of God and to the father. If any human being walked like that, they would be a perfect representation of God, a perfect image bearer. So blasphemy, blasphemy of God is what our lack of walk is. I mean, a lot of people, uh, I mean, there's a whole book on it that this woman just wrote, studied for like eight years, but she would say that the word blasphemy 
really has to do nothing with what comes out of your mouth. It's how are you bearing the name of God? Are you bearing you're you're bearing the name of God? Are you bearing it in such a way that brings him honor or brings him derision? If you're bearing it in a false way, then you're blaspheming by the way right. you live your life. So when somebody says they're a Christian, yet goes out and sleeps around, gets drunk, does all the things the way the world does, then what they're doing is they're committing blasphemy because they are bearing the image of God or bearing the name of God in a in a wicked way. Um, okay, so we talked about the name. I just, I real briefly want to... Uh, Talk about this idea of seeds. Obviously, there's going to be the ultimate seed that's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate seed that came of a woman. Even in John, it talks about that. Um, where is it? Oh, it's actually Galatians 4.4. It says that um, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. Now, nowhere in the Bible do they ever track lineage through women. It's always the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And yet Galatians goes out of its way in Galatians 4.4 4 to say, born of a woman under the law. Why? Because he's pointing directly back to Genesis 3.15 saying, this is the one we're talking about. The ultimate seed of the woman. Now there will be other seeds of the woman. And that's what we're going to start to see is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman being those who follow Yahweh and the seed of the serpent being those who follow the devil. And what we're going to start to see from here on is Right off the bat, we see in chapter four, the next chapter, who do we see? Two people, Cain and Abel. Who did they both come from? Eve. But who ultimately is Cain a son of? The devil. He's a murderer. He's a son of the devil. Jesus in the New Testament, in John 8, 44, says of the Pharisees, if you really knew my father and loved him, you would believe me for I came from him, but you are actually sons of your father. And he says, the devil. In another place, he calls them a brood of serpents. He's always pointing back to, no, no, no. You're not, you're not of the seed of, of God. You're not of the children of God. You're the children of the serpent. You're murderers, just like the devil was from the beginning. So over and over, Jesus makes these kind of what we don't totally understand them in our language or in our cultural setting. But he's really making like really offensive uh, statements toward the Pharisees. He's really calling them out. He's like, no, you're not. Not only are you not a follower of Yahweh, you're the complete opposite. You're sons of the serpent. Mm -hmm. uh, so one the point Cain he calls them foxes. Story is essentially a foreshadowing of the seed of the devil killing the seed of God and killing Jesus. Came. All the way through the entire rest of the Bible, we're going to see this juxtaposition of the seed of the woman, the seed of the devil, the seed of the woman, the seed of the devil. So what we're going to do is we're just going to fast forward. There's other things I can go into here, but I want to get through Genesis six. So I'm going to read Genesis six really quick. So we're fast forwarding past the story of Cain and Abel, past the birth of Seth. That was this another, another seed. She said, I have gotten an offspring from the Lord. So immediately, even Eve is thinking, maybe this is the one she says, because the Lord promises the curse happens. And then she promises your seed will crush the seed or crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And then what does she name her next kid? The name. He's, he's of the name. He's the, the next seed. I've gotten the seed. In other words, I've gotten the one who's going to do it. That's what she's hoping. That's what Seth means? Seth means the name. So Genesis 6.1, we'll start here. 
When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. Okay, right here, sons of God. This is where things get kind of weird. Some people don't like this. A lot of people try and re-explain this in a different way. The sons of God is only ever used in the Old Testament. The word is Ben Elohim. Sons of God. It is only used of spiritual beings. A lot of people say, oh, this is the line of Seth because they're the true sons of God. Nowhere ever in the Old Testament is it. Sorry for the abrupt ending. The recording cut off, but you can continue with the next episode of the podcast, which kind of picked up where this one left off. Thanks.